The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Mark 7, 1-5 and 14-23. through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Well, hey, everybody. I'm excited to get into this message. Uh, You know, we started at the beginning of this service, and I, I just made the assertion that we all want to be righteous, and we do. We all, I've never met anybody who doesn't want to be right, um, who, doesn't want to, who doesn't want to know that, that where they're planting their feet theologically, philosophically, relationally is, is stable ground. And so we work hard at it, but the problem that all of us have is that none of us are righteous. Um, we, just, we just aren't. And so the question is, what are we to do about that? Because it's not a bad desire. In preparation for today's sermon, I asked social media for some help. Um, I, I quote this. Help me write my sermon. Name something petty that makes you judge people when you see them do it. You, you just thought of your answer right now. If you, ha- if you didn't reply on the, on the thread already, you just, you just thought of something, right? Uh, here's what happened when I posted that. I thought, maybe I'll get a few responses. Listen, people showed up. Um, I got over 300 responses within 24 hours, which tells you something, right? Because I wasn't asking the question, what do people do that just drives you crazy? I ask them, 
what's something petty that you judge people? So they're not like telling on other people, they're telling on themselves. And some of you in this room were very much a part of that. You, you weighed in. Uh, some of you weighed in in ways that just, I feel like I just know you so much better now, you know? But, you know, people really wanted to share this because it's something that's common to all of us. And many of the answers revolved around some of the usual suspects, right? Like driving and grocery store etiquette, uh, turn signals, checkout aisle content, that sort of thing. Lots of grammatical stuff too. I kind of started off with some grammatical uh, things as well. Confusing your and your, there, there, and there. The use of the Oxford comma. Excessive exclamation points. Listen, if you're a writer, you get three exclamation points for every 100,000 words. Three. So that means for every two books, you can use three. No more. Deal? Now, if it's social media, if it's letters, go crazy. It doesn't matter. Three. That's all you get. Here's what else. We, here's, here's some of the other things that we heard. Um, wearing a mask alone in your car. <laughs> uh, watching videos with the sound on in public, uh, ignoring directional arrows in the grocery store was one, yeah, uh, cutting in line with a bonus being cutting in line and pretending like you have no idea that you just cut in line, like you're just oblivious to it, that drove people crazy, posting selfies that were obviously taken in bathrooms, um, hiking in jeans, Smoking and vaping. Um, I loved this one. Poor design when a better design was so obvious to everybody. Uh, and then last one, I, I just like this one because somebody actually posted a, a bit from, from an actual obituary. Uh, and it has to do with shopping carts and what you're supposed to do with your shopping cart when you're done with it. And it said this in the obituary. In lieu, in lieu of flowers, return your shopping carts to the store don't leave them all over the parking lot. That drove Larry crazy. This was his one wish for humanity. <laughs> now, listen, a few people commented uh, in the process of doing this on how easy it was for them to come up with a list of things and, and, and how problematic it was. And, and being honest, as I'm watching these answers come in, these examples of pettiness. You know what's happening in my own heart? I judged everybody. Everybody. I couldn't believe, I can't believe how petty you all are. It just, I, and I found myself doing it, and, and it just became like, I initially posted it because I wanted some content, but what ended up happening is I was like, oh, we've, we have a little sociological experiment happening here, and what we're finding is that everybody's stuck in this problem is that we just judge, we judge like crazy, we compare ourselves to others. We think that drives me crazy, and the reason it drives you crazy is because you wanna be righteous. It drives you crazy because you wanna be righteous in one of the easiest ways, one of the simplest paths to trying to obtain righteousness is through comparison. It's through saying, I would never do this horrific thing that monster does when they leave their grocery, grocery cart in the middle of the, the parking lot. They probably went the wrong direction in all the grocery lines before they even brought it out here into the parking lot and probably went through the express lane with 60 items. I would never do anything like that. 
That's what we're talking about today. That's what this passage is about today. It's a common type of passage in the Gospels where there's a, a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. It happens a lot. We've already had one sermon where, where this happened because the Pharisees were upset with Jesus' disciples picking heads of grain and eating on the Sabbath and Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But here there's just this conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus over the interpretation and the application of the law. But what's ultimately at play in this conflict is being righteous. That's the issue. We want to be righteous, and the Pharisees are saying, then this is how you're righteous. This is how you're going to be righteous. And what they had done is they had said, let's just codify righteousness and make rules. Just make lots of rules. And then you'll know. You'll know. And we all have these rules. We have rules that we write, and we're, people drive us crazy when they break them. The Pharisees were people, when you read in the scriptures, you see that they were always watching, always watching. And they had lots of pet peeves, lots of things that just upset them. They saw in this passage that Jesus' disciples ate without washing their hands in the ceremonial way that it was traditionally done by Jewish people. Mark uses this opportunity in verses 3 and 4 to actually elaborate on that particular tradition because he's writing to an audience that may have not have been familiar with this. Um, by the way, have any of you ever heard uh, that every use of the word, this is completely tangential, what I'm about to say, um, but that there are no examples of, um, every time the word baptizo, the word for baptism, is used in scripture, uh, is, is in reference to an immersion. Have you ever heard that, that every time the word bap baptizo is Here's a place where it's not, um, because the word baptizo is used for the washing of dining couches, so that's for what it's worth. Um, I'm doubting that people immerse to their sofas. Free of charge. Um, the ritual that's happening here, it, it wasn't just a tradition. It was expected. It was problematic when it was Neglected, And you may read this and think, yeah, that is kind of strange that they would have this hand-washing custom. I mean, who cares? Maybe we care a little bit more now <laughs> about hand-washing. Um, but, you know, you might look at that. But, but you have to ask the question, aren't all social customs strange in some way? I mean, some of the people who answered the survey talked about how it just drove them absolutely crazy when somebody walked around with a Bluetooth uh, in their ear with no one to talk to. That may be strange, but is it wrong? And if so, why? On what basis? Who, who can say? It's annoying. Yeah, I'll judge you if you do that. I'll just tell you right now. Um, but is it wrong? Eh, it's kind of morally neutral, isn't it? But the tension here between Jesus and the Pharisees has to do with that question of morality, really. That's what's at the heart of it. It's the question of the basis of moral authority. Who has moral authority? Self-righteous people believe they have moral authority. Why does moral authority matter? Moral authority matters because moral authority defines moral purity. And like I said at the very beginning of this sermon... What do we want? Moral purity. We want to be righteous. We want to be righteous. And so if I can have my own moral authority over what constitutes moral purity, then I can create a system 
in which I can make rules, keep the rules, and declare myself righteous. But you have to have the moral authority to do that. When we judge people by our preferences, what we end up doing is we end up claiming some moral authority in order to position ourselves in a ranking system. And we invariably establish ourselves as better than others. And you may say, I don't. I always see myself as way inferior to others. I want to tell you that is a form of putting yourself above others. Is by saying, I'm exceedingly more humble and self-deprecating than those confident idiots that just walk around like they're doing okay, right? We do this. And Jesus, in this conversation, the Pharisees ask Jesus, why don't your disciples follow tradition and custom? And he answers with a parable. I was surprised to learn that this was actually classified as a parable, but it's in the text. It's described as a parable. And the parable is in verses 14 and 15. He calls the people to him, and he says, hear me, all of you, and understand. And this is the parable. You ready? There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. That's the parable. So, parable is a story with a point, right? And so that's what he's doing here. And he's saying it's not what you take into yourself, but it's, what's come, it's what comes out of you that's already there that, makes, that defiles you. The disciples ask for clarity. Help us understand what it is that you mean. And here's a place in Scripture where there's a... G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, the very last sentence of that book, he, he makes this comment that's kind of haunting, and he says that one of the things that Jesus withheld from the world in his earthly ministry was his mirth. Here's a place, though, where there's a little bit of humor. Follow me. Let's all be 12 years old for a second. The disciples ask for clarity. Jesus gets anatomical. And what he basically said is what enters the stomach doesn't defile a person, it just passes through them. As a doctor, doctor friend of mine once said, anatomically we're basically donuts. And then Mark parenthetically adds, I'm just going to let that sit there, Mark parenthetically adds that this was the moment that Jesus declared all foods clean, was right here, so bacon. But what resides in the heart, that's the issue. That's the issue. What comes out of a person comes from the heart. Things like, verses 21 through 23, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. If we could boil moral authority down to ceremonies, if we could do that, then we could make moral purity a ceremonial exercise. And that's doable. We could cleanse ourselves from the outside. We could get our behavior in line according to the rules that we say are valid. And then we could take pride in our self-discipline and call ourselves righteous. And the Pharisees were all about this. They were very precise about this. But Jesus, in this passage, he takes that away from us. He takes it away from us. Your righteousness problem isn't because of what you put into yourself from the outside. 
It's because of what is already inside of you that comes out. Some of the things that annoy us are just really annoyances, right? Like grammar, nail clippers, the sound of nail clippers, things like that. But some of the things that annoy us, they come from places where we're wounded. They come from places that are deep inside of us, sacred places. Like, for example, when, when you get annoyed with somebody who takes too many items into the express lane, the chances are good, I know when it happens for me, that part of the indignation comes from wounds. You may say, oh, you're overstating this by a lot. Well, listen, the wounds of being taken advantage of or presumed upon or undervalued, because really, it isn't the number of items that makes us mad. It's the disregard of us that makes us mad. And that's sacred ground. To be disregarded by somebody, that's sacred Self-righteousness comes, it boils up, and it takes over when we are just trying to hold something together. And we know in the back of our minds, what I'm trying to hold together is tenuous. It's tenuous. And, and, and yet, that is when, when you're trying to hold something together that's tenuous, that's when we begin to demand what we feel we deserve from people. And that's where the indignation is. And so I ask you the question, what are you desperately trying to hold together? Where your self-righteousness is an exercise in trying to hold something together because it's exhausting. Does it demand that you compare yourself to other people? Does it man, do, you, do you then demand certain outcomes from God? And when that comes apart, how do you respond? I want to tell you a quick story about me when I was 10 years old. Um, I tried to build a raft. I grew up in the country in Indiana on an acre of land that we had bought from my grandfather who had about 60 acres. We lived right next door to him. He was a gentleman farmer. Uh, he kept a very neat garden. He grew bamboo and he would harvest it every year and there was this giant pile of bamboo that was just ours as kids to do with whatever we wanted, my brother and I. He also had an unlimited supply of baling twine, and he kept, he, was, he kept empty milk jugs, because who knows when you're going to need 60 empty milk jugs, and he would keep them. And I, I saw that I have baling twine and milk jugs and bamboo, and I can put these things together, and I can make a raft that could be seaworthy. And I lived right on Buck Creek in Indiana, which flowed into Cicero Creek, which flowed into the White River, which flowed into the Mississippi River, which flew into the Gulf of Mexico. And so I was going. I was going to the Gulf of Mexico. I had a vision for it. I was going to do it. And so that's where I was. I had vision. I had materials. I had a waterway. I had time. What I didn't have was craftsmanship. What I didn't have was the knowledge of how to build something with structural integrity. I didn't understand what made something seaworthy, but I had desire, and that desire then led to the earliest prayer that I can ever remember praying. And the prayer was this. I could tell that as I was building the raft that it had problems. And I realized that if my vision was going to work, if my plan to venture off into the wild world of freedom adrift on the high seas was going to pan out. I was going to need some divine intervention, and so I prayed. And it was an earnest prayer. I wasn't having an existential crisis of wondering if God existed. In that moment, I was sure he did, 
because somebody up there had to be there to help me, right? And so I said, God, if you're good, if you hear me, and then I checked myself, wait, no, if you love me, prove it by making this raft work. As we get older, we massage and nuance those prayers, but we still pray those prayers, don't we? Prove it. Prove it. And so where are you trying to execute a vision and you feel like a desperate need for God to just get on board? Cooperate. There are rules we create, there are pet peeves that we preserve, the constant assessment of others. Are those things not part of a need to just be in control? And is our need to control not a part of a need to be righteous? We're trying to fix what we can't fix. Well, when I tried to move that raft from the bank of the creek into the water, it just fell apart in my hands. It, was, it fell apart in such a way that as a 10-year-old, I knew it was hopeless. It was as though I had done nothing. And I remember being mad at God. Just, what's this? You heard, I know you heard my prayer, and you, my first, my first prayer, and you're going to give me a no? That's how I felt. That's how I felt. And I can't tell you, like, I, it's a sermon illustration now because it was a big moment then. Like, I can't tell you how big of a moment that was for me, how committed I was to that silly vision, and how I just was sure in my mind that because I had asked him, if you love me, you'll do this for me, that I'd painted him into a corner that he couldn't get out of. I was so committed to it. I was desperate for God to cooperate. This is what the Pharisees are doing. They are building a raft. They have visions of it, carrying them off into glory, the kind of glory that their hearts hunger for. And if God cooperated, and if everybody got on board, then everything was going to be okay. And Jesus told them it doesn't work that way. Righteousness doesn't work this way. And that upset the self-righteous because we work hard to build our own ways to righteousness and we feel like God owes us something for the work that we do. The title of this sermon is Jesus, Our Substitute. Substitute for what? For righteousness. And for all that that need requires of us. To a people desperate to be righteous, Jesus doesn't say, well, you can't be. He says you can't be on your own. But he can be for us. See, our desire to be righteous comes from someplace good. In fact, we're made for it. Right? We're made to be like Adam and Eve before the fall, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. That's what we're made for. Our hearts long for that. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. It's like the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. But if we try to find righteousness by making rules and then keeping those rules, what we're going to do is we're actually going to destroy any hope of peace that we could have because we're going to measure ourselves against others. And we're going to maintain an adversarial posture. And Jesus, I'm happy to report, will always oppose this. He will always frustrate this, obtaining our own righteousness by trying to be more righteous than others. Because righteousness is, by definition, an all-or-nothing proposition. (laughs) 
This is, why, this is why Jesus engaged the Pharisees all the time, and he didn't just kick them to the curb when they got in these dust-ups over righteousness and the application of the law. When he opposed their self-righteousness, he was fighting for their hearts. He was trying to pry their fingers off of something that they were holding on to with a death grip. He was, trying, he was fighting for their hearts. They were children with faulty rafts, angry with God for not making them float. And he wanted them to know the love of God. And he wanted them to know that this was not something they had to earn through their performance. It was already there. It was in him. When we're trying to hold our fragile worlds together and our hearts demand of God and of other people, get on board with my vision or face my contempt, it's because of Jesus' love that he would oppose that that he would cause that to fail. Because what we ultimately want is righteousness. That's where our pet peeves come from. But Jesus doesn't mock us when we want this and say, you want to be righteous? I mean, look at you. Not a chance. That's not what he does. Instead, what he does is he says, I want you to be righteous too. And I will make it so. And I will take your unrighteousness and I will give you my righteousness. And when he does, that contempt that we feel through comparison gives way. It gives way to love, and our pettiness gives way to patience with people. And our self-righteousness gives way to humility. Our desire to be righteous, friends, is a good desire. You want to be righteous? Good. You should want that. Jesus wants that for you. You can't make yourself righteous, but you have somebody who already has. And all you need to do is believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are uh, people who want to be righteous and then try to make it so by just trying to be more righteous uh, than others. And... Lord, that turns us against each other and we live in a world that's so divided in so many ways and really at the heart of all of it is a longing to be right, um, is a longing to be on the right side of things, to be pure. And we thank you that at the heart of the gospel is this promise that we are made righteous because of your perfect righteousness on our behalf. And so we thank you for that. Guide us now in our hearts to receive well the Lord's table, the communion table, which is a reminder to us of how we're made righteous. We pray this in your name. Amen.